Um, I'm excited about our passage in Scripture. I titled it, Keeping Up With What God Is Doing. Um, we're going to look at a, a lot of interesting things. The, the couple of questions I would put out front would be, what does it look like to align yourself with the political or religious group that is outlawed? Um, what would it feel like to show up uninvited to preach to someone who is part of a regime that just killed your leader? Um, what does it mean to see ourselves in some of these stories? But before we do that, I'd love to open us in a word of prayer. So if we can bow our heads, uh, I'll read this for us. But Father God, grant us peace that we may sleep in the midst of storms, faith that we might walk forward in trust. Grant us joy that shines despite the clouds, contentment that is anchored in you. Grant us freedom from fear, even when uncertainty abounds. Courage to live as witnesses of Jesus, even when threatened. Grant us love for our brothers and sisters, grace that we might know their pain and be a balm of healing. Grant us attentiveness to the felt needs of others, compassion that touches lives. Ground us in the love of Christ that we may be, be unshaken and fill us with the power of your spirit that we may be comforted. Stir in us a hope that carries us forward. Father, we commit ourselves to you and for your glory. Amen. Uh, well, we are in our Bible in a Year Plus series, and, and if you've been with us since the beginning, you might think it's Bible in a Year Plus Plus, uh, but it's been really fun just tracking uh, the story of God as we go through the scriptures, and we've slowed down for the book of Luke and then now the book of Acts, and we're in Acts chapter 10, but I want to kind of recap the book of Acts so that we can locate ourselves and see what Luke, who wrote Acts, is actually trying to do. And so if we look at Acts 1.8, we get the theme verse. This is the theme verse, the overarching verse that sets up all of the book of Acts uh, or the Acts of the Apostles. And it reads like this, that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Uh, this is Jesus talking to his disciples before he ascends and goes to be with the Father. And this idea is that he is commissioning the spread of the gospel, and then it's going to go to these different regions. Um, the interesting thing that Tamara and I have been talking a lot about is, is just the, the role of the Holy Spirit, both in this verse and in the book of Acts, all the way through, that we're not doing this uh, in our own strength. We're not doing this um, with, our, with our own plans or agendas. We're not doing this in some ways uh, with our own vision. We're, we're following the Holy Spirit where God is leading, where, where the Spirit is guiding to accomplish God's purposes. But this is the theme verse. If we want to look at the outline, uh, it would look like this. The outline of the book of Acts uh, would, would be the mission verse that kind of sets it up, intro, uh, introduces it. And then we look from Acts 2 to uh, Acts 7 at the Jerusalem church. So this is the building or forming of the church. And then once that church is formed, we begin to see the spread of the gospel. And in Acts 8 through 11, we get what, what I would call the conversion of the unlikely, uh, the conversion of the unlikely. And then the rest of Acts is the gospel to the nations as it spreads all the way out, primarily with the ministry uh, or the mission of Paul the apostle. Uh, but the conversion of the unlikely and then the gospel to the nations. If we look a little bit more closely uh, at that section, Acts 8 through 10, we would get this. 
uh, that Acts 8 is going to show us that the gospel goes to the Samaritans and to North Africa. And that's incredibly unlikely just because of the people groups, uh, especially the Samaritans. Um, and then we get two individual conversions. The conversion of Saul, who's a religious uh, persecutor. He's been persecuting the Christians, killing the Christians. And so that's an incredibly unlikely conversion. And then the conversion of Cornelius, who's a Roman oppressor. Again, an incredibly unlikely conversion. If we look at Acts 10.1, we can see a little bit of why this would be so unlikely. Uh, Acts 10.1, it says, At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. So this is a Roman soldier in the, the Roman capital of, of the province, and he's not a mercenary soldier. He's not a soldier from a conquered nation uh, that they conscribe or inscript or pay uh, to help keep peace in this area of the Roman Empire. He's from the Italian regiment. He represents Rome. He represents the oppressor. He represents empire. So it's an incredibly unlikely conversion. And this is the one that we're looking at um, today. So if we jump into it, it's a chapter and a half. And so I'm going to try and walk us through the story of the conversion of Cornelius and give a couple of the highlights with the scriptural text and, and help um, give us the context. But it begins with Cornelius having a dream. So Cornelius has a dream from God and God tells him to go and find a man named Simon Peter. And Simon Peter is going to be in Joppa in a house owned by Simon the Tanner. Um, that's a pretty specific dream. It's an amazing thing for this Roman centurion to have this dream to go send for a person he does not know in a place um, with that degree of specificity. At the same time that this is happening, Peter, the next morning, uh, is up on the roof, and while he's praying to God, he has a vision. And so we can put it on the screen, Acts 10, 11 through 13 that he saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. And then a voice saying, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Now, Peter argues with God. Three different times he argues with God that he will not, uh, absolutely will not do this, eat these animals, because that would be um, something that would defile him in terms of his religious faith that as a devout Jew, he's not allowed to eat any animal that's unclean. And all of these things brought down in this sheet are unclean animals. So argues with God three times, and then God responds, Acts 10, 15, and says, do not call anything impure that God has made pure. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And so the messengers, ironically, from Cornelius, arrive at Peter's house or where Peter's staying. And the next day, after telling Peter about Cornelius and Cornelius' dream, they take, uh, they take a two-day journey to Caesarea uh, to go visit Cornelius' home. When they arrive, Peter tells Cornelius about his dream. And Cornelius responds by telling Peter why he sent for him and about how God spoke to him, even though he's not a believer at this point. Peter then shares about Jesus. He talks about how Jesus was killed on a cross, that he was raised in three days, that they are witnesses to this fact, 
um, and that Jesus is going to or is forgiving the sins of people, that, that followers are coming into um, this church, uh, this early church, finding forgiveness and following Jesus uh, as the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, the early Christians were called followers of the way uh, before they got the nickname Christians, which came from the church uh, at Antioch. And so while Peter is sharing this gospel with Cornelius and Cornelius' household, so you can imagine everybody being gathered in what was probably a, a nice home, uh, while this is happening, we read in Acts 10, verses 44 on, um, 44 through 46, that the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. So as they're all in this room, the Holy Spirit descends on all who are hearing the message. And the circumcised believers, the Jewish believers who had come with Peter, were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on Gentiles, meaning the uncircumcised. So these are people that are not ceremonially set apart to God. They're not, the word would be holy, set apart. They're not um, set apart unto God to, in a way, get the, the power of the Spirit, which is the holiness of God coming and meeting people. How are the uncircumcised receiving this gift of the Holy Spirit? Do you see the tension for them? Um, so they watch and they see and, and as the Holy Spirit comes, um, Peter looks around and decides that, that uh, Cornelius' household should be baptized. Uh, that if they have received the Holy Spirit like others have re received the Holy Spirit, we should baptize this household. After baptizing them, Cornelius invites Peter to stay, and Peter does. He stays for several days uh, at Cornelius' home and teaches them all that Jesus had conveyed. Uh, we get a scene change then. Uh, after we've been with Peter and Cornelius and this amazing thing that's happening, uh, chapter 11 brings a scene change, and it reads like this, Acts 11, verses 1 through th uh, 3, and it says, The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of an uncircumcised man and you ate with them. In other words, they're bringing the religious code. Uh, they're bringing the community behaviors. They're bringing the cultural norms and saying, this is forbidden. You should not go into the home of an unbeliever. You shouldn't go into the home of uncircumcised uh, people. You shouldn't go into that home and eat with them. And you certainly shouldn't be uh, conveying or bringing the special gift from God that was reserved for God's people. What is really going on here? And as Peter recounts the story and talks about his dream, talks about Cornelius's dream, we get this in Acts eleven eighteen. that when they had heard this, the story, the explanation, they had no further objections and they praised God saying, so then even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So the first reaction after they really sit with it is, is a learning of what God is doing through the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, the early church, 
I think gives us an incredible example of this posture of openness to see what God is doing and to be changed or shaped by that. That we're not rigid or holding on to our expectations, but we're watching what God is doing and getting excited about it, giving him thanks and praise. In fact, uh, in fact, praising God or thanksgiving to God is one of the greatest forms of worship that we see uh, in the scriptures. So this is an amazing story. Um, it's fun to be able to study the Bible and to get into these things and to begin to feel them. And so what I want to do is, is come at it now and look at it three different ways psychologically. Uh, we don't always get to talk about the Bible using psychological language, but we're talking about a really interesting story here with different characters. And so I want to look at it from the perspective of these individuals, and we'll start with Cornelius. We'll start with Cornelius. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, Cornelius is a representative of the Roman Empire. He's in Caesarea, which is the seat of military power. I've got a couple pictures I can show you. It's still there uh, in terms of ruins. But this is the amphitheater uh, in Caesarea. It's a port town, was a port town. If we go forward, um, this is uh, the long, um, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the name, but where they would have had the horse races and you see the ocean on one side and on the other side you see the stairs, but it's, it's a form uh, of, of uh, games at the center of a Roman city. Next picture, uh, this is where, um, the home of, of one of the kings of Israel or, or one of the leaders of Israel would have been when uh, Herod, I think, built this city where he would have put his home. It's right out over the ocean using the water as a form of ventilation and cooling uh, for the summer months. We can look at one more picture here. Uh, this is um, possibly where, where Paul was held later in the book of Acts when he was brought to Caesarea and held. Uh, and then interviewed many times, King Agrippa, Felix, etc. And if you look forward, you'll see some ruins over there. At the top of this city, as it stretches along the coast, was the harbor. And it was a famous harbor. Uh, it was a harbor used all the way into the time of the Crusades. And we can do one picture of that, I think is the next picture. Uh, so it would have, the water break would have started there and curled around and formed the natural harbor. And then eventually earthquakes and other things um, filled it up to the point where it was no longer used. But this Roman centurion is uh, in this city, the capital uh, city, or the, at least the, the seat of power where Pontius Pilate would have been. Uh, for a Roman figure, uh, Pontius Pilate, we get confused often. He was in Jerusalem because of the Passover, but he would have stayed and resided here. This is where he would have governed the region. Um, so it's a really interesting thing that we're only a few months away from Jesus being crucified by the Romans as a rebellious leader challenging Rome's authority and inciting a riot over Passover. From the Roman perspective, Jesus incited a riot by turning over the money changer tables and causing all sorts of uproar in the temple courts. Uh, so for a Roman figure with this degree of authority, it would have been scandalous to identify with a Jewish fisherman, Peter, much less one of the chief co-conspirators of Jesus of Nazareth. He was one of the chief co-conspirators or rebels, if you will, of Jesus of Nazareth. It would have been even more scandalous to subject yourself to baptism, a ritual bath, 
placing yourself under the authority of this fisherman, Peter, and to declare yourself as a follower of Jesus, the one who had been crucified. What would others have thought of you? Could you have talked about it openly in Caesarea? Do you feel just how crazy this, this really is, the, the socio-political weight of what, of what was going on and what Cornelius was engaged in, not just he, but his servants and his family as well? Let's turn it um, and look at Peter now. What does this look like for Peter? So you're a fisherman from Galilee, if you're Peter, and you're now in crazy or different political circles than you ever would have imagined yourself being in. And you're navigating um, all of these towns as you're kind of moving around and oftentimes in hiding. You've been living a day-to-day drama ever since the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, This fear of your life being taken and people bringing you before the authorities. Um, You've witnessed the miraculous outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the amazing birth of the church, and now you've become unwittingly, unknowingly, a co-lead pastor of a multicultural church of thousands of people. Uh, Before Jesus died, they were picturing something totally different. They were picturing a kingdom and, and seats next to a throne. And all of a sudden, Peter is one of many who are leading this church of thousands. You've helped bring the gospel to the Samaritans, something that never would have uh, seemed possible before Jesus' death. And now you're staying out of sight at a believer's home in Joppa. Um, Joppa is a coastal town. Uh, It was another port town. It's now called Jaffa. We can see a couple pictures of this. The old town in Jaffa was destroyed in one of the world wars uh, when when people landed and and, uh, cleared the way. Uh, for soldiers to come up, but it still has some older sections. This is kind of the area right on the coast. We can look at the next picture. Uh, This is looking out at the ocean and standing in the same place and looking to the right. Next picture, you can see Tel Aviv. And so Jaffa now, or Joppa, uh, was uh, for a long time a form of a capital city. Now it's just a shoulder to or a neighborhood to Uh, Tel Aviv, which is the modern capital of the nation state of Israel. So you're Peter and you're in this town. You're staying at someone else's house. And as you're praying to God, which is your custom because uh, of all the wisdom that you want, you're trying to get, you have this strange dream. And before you know it, there are messengers asking you to come or, or imagine you could be feeling as if you're being asked to come report to a centurion's house in Caesarea. Um, But because God had given you this dream, you travel to Caesarea for two days. You're going towards the capital or the, the seat of power of the Roman Empire. You're going towards Pilate. This is only a couple of months after Jesus has died. And you end up walking in and meeting this person. This is a It's a reenactment picture of what a centurion would have looked like. A centurion is a leader over 180 soldiers, roughly, and then 20 um, attaches or servants that would have helped with military, uh, military gear and other things. But we're talking about an imposing figure with a lot of representative or symbolic power. And you're this Jewish fisherman trying to figure out what the heck God is doing um, and how you keep up with where the Holy Spirit is leading. Um, can you feel the drama? 
Can you imagine being Peter and just being in this space and feeling uncomfortable? You've probably never had a friend who's a Roman soldier. You've probably never had a friend with somebody that has this kind of worldly power. And you're sitting there talking about the story of Jesus Christ and trying to catch up with what is happening and wondering what God is really doing. Can you feel the drama? Can you feel how socio-political it actually is? And then there's a, a third group here. Um, there's a third group. So first Cornelius, then Peter's perspective. Now the perspective of the broader circle of believers. You're a church that's been persecuted. Um, you're often in hiding. You're wondering if it's safe, who you can talk to. You're trying to figure out who the good guys are because there seem to be so many bad guys. Who's safe? Because there's so many things that feel unsafe in the, in the world. And as you're doing this and living with your fears, you hear about Peter in Caesarea at the home of, of a Roman centurion's house. Uh, and you hear that he has now baptized a whole group of individuals and that he's spending time there. What are you doing, Peter? What are you doing? Have you lost your mind, Peter? Is he sharing things that could lead to arrest and persecution of others? Is he putting us at risk? He didn't even ask our permission. How is he maintaining his purity? He's supposed to, to, to be a leader in the church. How is he maintaining his purity as a Jewish leader if he's in the home of a Gentile? Theologically, Peter, are you watering down the gospel? It doesn't make any sense. Are you making concessions with these individuals that you're talking to? What is the socio-political drama that ensues with this group of people? How many people do you, um, do you think had an opinion about this? When they got together, they're not asking what's really going on in your heart. They're saying, have you heard about what Peter's doing? They're talking about it in hushed tones in Jerusalem. They're spreading it from house church to, to house church in Jerusalem. And they're wondering, Peter, what are you really doing? And this is really uncomfortable for us. Do you feel the drama there? And this is what Luke is trying to pull us into in telling us this story. It is a story of a conversion that is incredibly unlikely, and it changes the trajectory or the understanding of the whole New Testament church. Peter has been prompted by God to take the gospel to the oppressor. God's purpose is to show the whole believing community, the church, that he intends to bring everyone into the fold that it really is a gospel for the nations and to the nations. Saul, or Paul first, and now the Romans, what God makes clean, let no one consider unclean. Uh, St. Augustine had this quote on the gospel. He said that if you believe what you like in the gospels and reject what you don't like, it is not the gospel you believe, but yourself. I think this quote is operative in this story, that, that uh, the believing community has an understanding of the good news, but it's an understanding that's small or smaller than God's vision. And they like it. They feel comfortable with it. They know what's going on with it. And now all of a sudden the Holy Spirit disrupts this 
And they have to be willing to accept a gospel or a plan of God that is bigger than what they would have wanted or what they expected. They have to see the beauty in that. They have to be able to worship God in the good news for all the people. Um, I, I think that what Leslie Newbigin, Leslie Newbigin was a, a missionary that came, a British missionary that came back after many years on the mission field and realized that the sending country had become the same as the country where he was a missionary, that the sending country had become pluralistic as well. And he started talking about, we have to be missionaries in our own country. And so as he talked about the gospel in a pluralistic society, he used this phrase to describe uh, the gospel. He called it the open secret, the open secret. I love that phrase. It's, it's this secret. It's this kind of scandalous thing that goes viral and touches people's lives. It's, it's this thing that we want to hear. We want to hear about the love of God. We want to hear that God sees us, that God knows us, that God has a plan for us, and that God is working through the power of the Holy Spirit. And in some ways, it's like a secret, but it's an open secret. It's an open secret that's supposed to be told to all people. It's an open secret that we're supposed to be witnesses of as we walk into this world and as we carry the love of Christ in our hearts. So the application for us today as carriers of this open secret, it would be these questions. Is there a group that we have individually or corporately ruled out categorically? By, by virtue of creating and naming a group, have we created a class of people that are outside of the gospel? Um, what cultural or religious norms that are non-essential do we expect people to have to adopt if they are going to be called Christians? The whole debate in the early church around circumcision. I think we do this with immigrants. I think we can do it with Muslims. I think there's a lot of examples of creating a class of people that allows us to categorize them and then disengage in terms of the gospel. And it's a lot like what was happening here in the early church. And uh, Tam and I have been talking about this, but we, now that our daughters are essentially all four of them are teenagers, Ashlyn is 11, but she acts like a teenager. So um, we have these four girls in our home for just a little bit longer, and then they're going to go out into the world. And we have this fear that 10 years from now or 20 years from now, they're going to come back to us and say, why did you rule people out categorically? Why did you have a, a way of seeing the world that made it easy for you or that you could control and that you weren't willing to let the Holy Spirit show you what God was doing and that you created classes of people or you were complicit with classes of people being defined and then excluded in terms of our heart or our concern? Um, I have a fear of my daughters coming back and, and asking me about that someday. I think we should all have a little bit of a fear that way because we're no different than the early church in terms of always having a smaller box for what we think God is doing than what God is really doing. Is God calling you to risk everything and speak of Jesus to someone that you don't know, you might not trust, or is potentially a threat to you? The gospel always 
deals with power differentials. It's hard to talk to somebody about something difficult if they have more power than you. It's the Holy Spirit that empowers us to be able to take the message to places where we would have otherwise been afraid to go. Are we leaning on the Holy Spirit enough to give us the power that a way might open up that we don't think exists? Are you supposed to go somewhere to some group of people and spend time with them, eat with them, get to know them, build a relationship with them and their friends that the religious people in your life won't understand? They might gossip about you. They might even question your doctrine or purity. Um, by the way, ESOL at Village is one of the most amazing ministries that we have going. Just that there are so many different cultures and people that come and that people, uh, villagers that, who volunteer are helping them learn languages that is a, uh, an incredibly necessary skill. Uh, they're loving on them, spending time with them. And that in that process, there's relationship built and opportunity to share the love of Christ with people. It's, it's, a, it's an amazing picture of what can happen. But are we supposed to go somewhere? Are you supposed to go somewhere? Am I supposed to go somewhere? Am I ready for that? So let me conclude with this. Do we make enough of the Holy Spirit today? Are we, am I daily putting my hands out, believing that the Holy Spirit still does lead us forward for God's purposes? Do we make enough of the plans of God that are higher than our ways and higher than our thoughts? You know, God is writing his story and it continues today. What God makes clean, let no one consider unclean. Jesus' grace is sufficient, it's irresistible, and it reaches all the way to the edges, to the Samaritans, to the tax collectors, to the oppressors, to all of the people that might seem dirty in whatever, in any way that we would ascribe to them. Jesus makes all things new. Would we dare to imagine and ask that the Holy Spirit would pour out on us in a radical way? we would start having dreams and visions that carry us into scary and unexpected and amazing places. Wouldn't it be a wild thing if every Sunday we came and there was a dozen or two dozen people, new people that week that had had some crazy vision from God of sheets coming down and unclean animals and then someone knocking on your door and, and calling you to go somewhere that you would have never dreamed of going. Um, are we praying those prayers? I'm in. I'm in. Uh, I, want, I want to live my life and make my days count. I know you do too. So I, I, I would challenge us to start praying dangerous prayers. Um, dangerous prayers. And a dangerous prayer is simply a prayer that, that risks being answered by God. <laughs> you know what I mean? God, it's not my comfort I want. God, it's, it's not uh, this that I want. It's your will that I want. And I'm willing to do whatever you say to do. That's a dangerous prayer because God might just look at you and say, okay. But are we willing to pray a dangerous prayer? Um, let me close us uh, in prayer and then the worship team is gonna come back out and they're gonna lead us in song. And may we just continue as we go into song and worship in this posture of of openness and receptivity, that God still moves. God can move with you. God can move with the person next to you, even this morning or tonight or tomorrow. So Father, 
we submit to your story. Give us visions, give us dreams, carry us to places outside of our comfort zones. Lord, even now as the world is on edge and fearful, move us to where you would have us go. We are your servants. We believe, help our unbelief. In the name of your son, our savior, our king, and our Lord, amen.